This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Uh, earlier this week, we talked about the new health guidelines, so the new drinking guidelines from the Canadian Center for Substance Use and Addiction. New recommendations for what's considered to be low-risk or lower-risk alcohol consumption. Basically, they don't believe there is low-risk alcohol consumption. Uh, The guidelines from 11 years ago, or maybe it was 2011, anyway, it was just over a decade ago, uh, used to be no more than one or two drinks a day. Well, that's now changed to no more than one or two drinks a week, which averaged out on a daily basis is close to zero. In other words, there really is no safe consumption level of alcohol. And here's the thing. I mean, the reality is that, that... most adults are not meeting those guidelines. So do we need people to change their habits? Or do we need to, to rethink what the, the whole idea of low-risk alcohol consumption means? And yes, obviously there are health risks associated with alcohol. And the more you drink, the more you consume, the higher those risks are. But how do we factor in other elements of alcohol consumption and and the role it plays in our lives? So an interesting point has come up in all of this is the the social connections, the social benefits, the social lubrication, if you will, of alcohol. Are there benefits that stem from that? And and should that, can that be factored into these kinds of guidelines? There's an interesting exploration of that uh, in a piece up at uh, theconversation.com. Joining us uh, to talk more about it uh, is its author. Uh, Kiffer George Card, Assistant Professor in Health Sciences at Simon Fraser University. Professor Card, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, so what was your reaction to these guidelines, first of all? Yeah, I think the, I think the guidelines uh, surprised many people at how restrictive they are in terms of um, how many drinks you can have a week. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really disagree with their assessments. I think it's probably true that no amount of alcohol is completely safe. Um, but I think that it's important to contextualize that safety and all the many other health risks we engage in, and also to balance it with an understanding that there are some benefits of alcohol as well, as you mentioned, the social benefits. Um, particularly when we know things like loneliness and social isolation are harmful to your health, and healthy, strong social bonds are very important for your health. Um, alcohol can play an important role in helping people build those relationships. And so we really have to balance that in the overall context of people's real lives mm-hmm. and not just the, you know, statistical models that predict alcohol consumption and its impacts on health. That's interesting. And one could make the argument that it shouldn't matter, that people should be able to interact and socialize without alcohol. And maybe that's true. But the reality is that it, it very much is relevant, isn't it? Well, we know, for instance, that uh, alcohol is important for endorphin production. So you can, you know, when you're drinking alcohol, you release endorphins into your brain and that that makes you a little bit more relieved. Endorphin is, you know, kind of a bonding chemical. It's what makes you build relationships with people. The more time you spend with people and the more endorphin release, the stronger your bond is. And so alcohol kind of eases that process. 
And you're absolutely right that lots of people can form healthy, great relationships, have amazing social lives without any alcohol. But some people definitely find it easier, particularly those who have maybe social anxiety, who need to unwind from a stressful day. Um, it's a bit of a shortcut that we can use. And in the overall scheme of things, when you think of the value of social connection, you know, loneliness and social isolation are as bad for you as smoking 15 cigarettes a day when you look at their effect on mortality. And so, you know, understanding that in the context of, you know, having a healthy social life, one or two drinks, you know, with friends, three or four drinks with friends even, you know, a moderate level of alcohol consumption that improves your social life could be better for you than abstinence would be otherwise. Yeah, that's interesting. So there are some quantifiable aspects to this. Would it be possible to incorporate these into some guidelines that, you know, if you're drinking alone, that's more harmful than if you're drinking with a group of friends? So to somehow factor that into to these kinds of recommendations. Yeah, I mean, I would argue that people drinking alone should really consider their alcohol consumption as to whether or not it's healthy and safe for them. Um, Certainly, it is a coping strategy. If you're stressed, many people drink because they're stressed and they need release. But it's probably a more maladaptive coping, whereas there's probably other things you can do, meditation, exercise. Those things would be more effective than alcohol would at helping you to cope with stress. And so lonely drinking doesn't really seem to offer many benefits. It's really... Um, it's benefits in terms of endorphins and friendships and, you know, building relationships with acquaintances that certainly social health should be incorporated into these guidelines and conceptualized as part of um, not only the science of things, but also thinking from a realistic point of view of what are people going to interpret these guidelines as? And if they're too strict or too severe, don't match with their lived experience, are they just going to disregard them altogether mm-hmm. and thereby kind of undermine the overall value of, of public health guidelines, which are to inform people how to live healthier lives? Yeah, I do wonder about that. I mean, you know, certainly the conversations we've been having since these guidelines come out, I'm, I'm you know, getting a lot of cynicism or at least skepticism anyway. So if people are disregarding these guidelines, I don't know how effective they're likely to be. So, yeah, it's important to be realistic. It's better to have more people following less than perfect guidelines than to have nobody following you know the perfect guidelines i suppose is that is that fair yeah you know i had a conversation with a friend that when you you know dive into these uh these tables and their reports you know uh smoking or, or drinking two drinks per day that's way above the two peak per, per two week per, per limit they proposed mm-hmm. per week um you know two drinks per day is only associated with about seven months of life loss and so if you think of that trade-off I've had lots of friends say, oh, seven months? You know, I actually thought it was more than that. And I think that really underscores that people are willing to make trade-offs. You know, they understand that certain things, driving a car is a risky activity. You know, people are willing to accept some risks and trade-offs so that they can live healthier and happier lives. And if you don't reason with people, if you don't think about what, what are people's actually, what they're weighing in their minds, then I don't think these guidelines land well. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. Um, you know, back to the point about, you know, social interaction and the, and the role that alcohol can play and maybe acknowledging that. Is, is, is that an endorsement of alcohol? Would it come across as almost a recommendation that, that you should drink? Or is there a way to present it more neutrally, perhaps? I mean, yeah, I certainly think that there, you know, where something else where a laughter, laughter also releases endorphins. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. Touch, physical touch releases endorphins. There's, there's lots of activities that you can do to help build relationships and bondings. And I think 
this really underscores the heart of it is that, you know, our public health systems don't teach people about the importance of social connection. They don't realize most people that it's important is, you know, it has as big of a health effect as obesity, sedentary living, all these other things that public health really stresses, including alcohol consumption, as we're discussing. But nobody was taught how to do that. And I think that's a real missed opportunity in thinking about how we treat social connection. I wouldn't say that I endorse alcohol as a uniquely uh, beneficial way. I just think it is commonly used that way. And I think people know for themselves what they need in order to build happy and healthy relationships. And sometimes people's, you know, unique coping strategies is to use alcohol to just take that little bit of edge off to make them a little bit more open, a little bit more able to focus on the moment and the conversation in front of them. Certainly too much alcohol in a, in a social situation is not a good thing either. And so I think, uh, you know, I think giving some people their lives is really critical and they just don't think Well, your piece is up at theconversation.com. Again, Professor Card, thanks for joining us here this morning. Appreciate it. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.